In the book of Acts, chapter 8 and verse 30, stand with me if you would, and then we'll pray. Philip ran over, and he heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. And I, I believe we're all familiar with this passage in here. And Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me or teaches me or explains to me what this means? And so he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. Now, this man was a, a man of great authority. He worked for the queen of Ethiopia. And this was a man that would have been educated in his day and the sciences and the technologies, geography, religions, and things of that nature of, of that part of the world. Sometimes we forget that Northern Africa was the home to our first universities and our first seminaries. So when you think of Ethiopia then, and you think of Africa now, it's two different worlds. This was a very educated part of the world. So join me in prayer tonight. Father, as we continue our study of the book of 1 Peter, I'm just asking you in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, would you give us wisdom and would you give us insight into this command as we work our way through this tiny little book and we look at these three things that are a part of being a holy people of God. And I ask you tonight in the name of Jesus that you would... Um, you would open our hearts, you would open our minds, you'd give us wisdom and understanding, not so that we will just be smart, but God, so that we will live holy lives, effective lives for your glory and honor, I pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. For the last few weeks, I've tried to bring out in this, these first few verses, and you may be thinking, wow, Pastor... Where is all this coming from in just these first few verses? Well, it's all there, and there's no word in the Bible that's just an accidental word or just there by happenstance. These words are there, and the activity and the action that they describe are important, and they're vital for our lives and for our thinking. One of the things that Peter is very concerned about is that we live holy lives and that we be a holy people. He calls us to holiness. And I've shared with you many times on different occasions of how that holiness is not a negative thing. Holiness is a very positive thing. It's the very beauty of God. It's the power of God. In the Bible, holiness is described as the fruit of the Spirit. We looked at that the last time we were together looking at, at the book of 1 Peter. So when we talk about, I want to live a holy life, we're not talking about being esoteric. We're not talking about cloistering ourselves away as monks. We're not talking about looking down on other people and criticizing other people. We're talking about to the very best of our abilities, yielding our lives so that God can make us more and more like Jesus. And who wouldn't want to be like Jesus? Who wouldn't want to be like Christ? Loving and kind and considerate and, and at the same time powerful, insightful. Those are the qualities that we all want in our lives. So the first thing is I look at this tonight and I look at this phrase and I'll try to, to break this phrase out, prepare your minds for action. The first thing when you really understand this word of preparing Christianity really does require you to use your mind. Christianity is not a mindless, emotional religion. There is emotion to it. There is, there is feelings to it. But to be a Christian really does require you to use the mind that God has given you. A.W. Tozier wrote these words, We must face the fact that many today are notoriously careless in their living. This attitude finds its way into the church. We have liberty, we have money, we live in comparative luxury. And as a result, discipline practically has disappeared. What would a violin solo sound like if the strings on the musician's instrument were all hanging loose, not stretched tight, nor disciplined? In other words, what Tozier is trying to bring out is there has to be a measure of thought and tautness in the Christian's life that we live a disciplined life. When we say we want to live a holy life, and remember we talked about 
Holiness is being something that's set aside, something that's taken apart, and God sets it apart exclusively for His use. I am holy to Becky. I belong exclusively to Becky. As a matter of fact, I belong to Becky 24-7, 365 days of the year. I can't say to Becky, I'm going to be yours exclusively for 364 days of the year. I'm exclusively hers. She's I'm holy to her. She's holy to me. We're set apart to God. So look at this passage of Scripture from 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13 with me tonight. So prepare your minds for action. And I want you to underline that in your outline or if you have the little Bibles, the, the, the journal Bibles that uh, we made available to you, underline that phrase, prepare your minds for action because that word is an extremely prepare and I'll deal with that more in just a moment. And exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. And don't slip back. I mean, don't thoughtlessly slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. In other words, you didn't know better. You just, that's the way, that's the culture you lived in. But now, you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. So when you look at that passage and you underline, prepare your mind for action, that word prepare literally means to prepare ourselves to learn, but to prepare ourselves to act as well. It's a challenging word. It's, a, it's an interesting word. Uh, later, the, the Bible will use that very same word to say, let the Word of God challenge you or dwell in you richly. That word, it, it, it really means to let the Word challenge you. Let it challenge your thinking. Let it stretch you. Let it work in you. The Bible is not a passive book. If I read a novel by Daniel Silva, I've read something, I've been entertained, and I put it away or give it away. If I, if I read a, a textbook, I learn from the textbook. And how many of us go back and read our old college textbooks unless we just need something in particular we need to pull out of that sociology book or that psychology book? You know, we, we sell them or we rent them today, and even renting them, if you've got kids in college, you'll understand what I'm saying. Even renting those books are quite expensive. The word, the, the Greek word there literally means you've got to summon up all of your rational powers. You've got to summon up all the capacity you have to, to think. You've got to summon up all of your passive, your capacities to be able to reflect I don't know about you, but I love a good mystery. I still love to read the old Agatha Christie stories and Agatha Christie books. And if I ever find one that she's written that I've not read, I, I scoop it up and I read it. But here's my problem. I think, and you could disagree with me if you like on this, and you're probably right, but I think I'm a somewhat intelligent person, and I gather up all the clues, and I, I read it, and yet I, I come to the end, and most of the time I'm wrong, because I've either leaned into my intuition, and, and please don't talk to me about a lady's intuition after this tonight, I, I just don't want to hear it, uh, but I either leaned into my intuition, or I leaned into my prejudice, or I, I took and I went the wrong direction with all the facts that I was given, I still come up with the wrong ending to the story. Well, that's the mark of a good murder mystery, or that's the mark of a good mystery, is that you get the facts, you get the clues, but in getting them, you still don't come to the right conclusion. That's what makes a successful mystery author. So in the Bible, we're told we've got to ration, we've got to come up with everything and think about it. Because what I gather from all of my reading of the scriptures throughout the years is if you're committed without really thinking about why you're committed and thinking about what the word says, that will lead you to fanaticism. But if you just think about it and then you don't act upon it, then that will leave you with just kind of a, a paralysis of analysis and you become those kind of people. 
that Paul talks about in the old King James Version is they were puffed up. You know, pride literally puffed them up. They knew a lot, but they didn't do anything with it. And remember, you're called to be a holy people. And if we could get this buzzing out that's up here that I'm hearing somewhere, I would appreciate it. So the thing I want you to know is Christianity is for thinkers. Christianity is for people, followers of Jesus Christ, is for people who really think. Let's look again at just a few. We'll be looking at this more in the coming weeks, but let's look at 1 Peter 1.22. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So to obey it, you had to do more than just go, okay, I'm leaving my old life. I'm going to let God set me apart. you got to think about it. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Well, this kind of love that Jesus demonstrates to us is a much different love than the Greeks were used to thinking about. As a matter of fact, there was a new word coined. It was agape love, selfless love. He goes on to say, now you, because you're thinking, love each other deeply with all of your heart, for you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life, the born again, we talked about this last week or week before last, your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living Word of God. Notice that connection between obedience and new life. Skip over to Romans six seventeen. Thank God. Once you were slaves of sin, but now you have wholeheartedly obeyed this teaching which we have given you. In other words, they've thought about it, they've grasped it, they've understood it, they've embraced it, and they did it. Look at me. This word is also important in Romans. You know, we won't take a lot of time here because I don't want to leave Peter, but wholeheartedly, listen, simply means this. Wholeheartedly means it's emotional, but it's also volitional. And because it's emotional and it's volitional, it's rational. And so, Believing the gospel is rational. It's what rational, clear-minded, clear-thinking people do. They not only study the claims of the Word of God, they look at what Christ did and how Christ was raised again. Well, the only wholehearted thing to do, the only rational thing, emotional thing, volitional thing to choose to do is to follow Christ. It's why when I hear sometimes, and I, I read like one of my magazines that I keep referring back to one time is when Time Magazine attempted to take a lot of scientists and describe who we really were. And basically, the whole issue says we're just one big bag of chemicals. Our thoughts are just random molecules bouncing around in our heads. We're an accident. We're a bag of chemicals that somehow or another accidentally came together That's what science says we are. Some people will say because of that, because everything is an accident, that it really doesn't matter what you believe, that you're free to believe anything you want. And in America, in a pluralistic society like we live in, you are free. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be a believer in God whatsoever. You could choose not to be a a Muslim or not to be a Jew or not to be a Christian or you can be an atheist. You're, you're free to believe whatever you believe because there is no basis in this postmodern scientific world why we should believe. Then there are some churches that I've looked at and I've tried to figure out why have they abandoned the clear teaching of the Bible. And please don't read into this more than what I'm going to say. And when I've talked to people who aren't even Christians but they love going to a what we would call a high church, a liturgical church. What I hear from them is not that they love the sermon about the Word of God. What they love is the music, the incense, and the candles, and the architecture. They're moved emotionally by everything that they see taking place in this liturgical church. And again, I'm not slamming that. But then when I ask them about the sermon, they say, well, the sermon's maybe five to seven minutes long, and typically it's boring. I sleep through that part. And that's the reason in evangelical churches that our pulpits are in the middle. It's because of the high place that the Word of God has and that Jesus is the Word. 
Friends, you can't grow in holiness unless you think. And as a young Christian, I always used to pray, Lord, make me more holy. Lord, make me more holy. And because in my misunderstanding, I thought holiness was something, boom, God zapped you and you became holy. And when I've talked to some of you in here, you grew up in that same type of church where maybe somebody meant well, you had rules, and if you did the rules, you were holy. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. If you did the rules, you were holy. You didn't think about them because if you thought about them, you might challenge some of those rules. I'll give you a rule in my church growing up. In my church growing up, you couldn't use tobacco, but you could grow tobacco. Okay? Nobody really thought about that very well, did they? It's because tobacco was a cash crop, and people had made their living off of it. And, and when, you know, they were saved and born again, they wanted to please God, and they felt like this was a sign of worldliness, and so it became a rule. Second thing I want you to see tonight is re faith requires you to exercise your thinking, not just the decisions you made yesterday, not just what you learned today, but tomorrow morning, when I, and I won't tonight, I'll go home tonight, I'll read some from my Bible, and I'll pray, and as soon as my head hits the pillow, I'll go to sleep. I don't have any problem with that, but when I wake up in the morning, I'll exercise my thinking. I will pray again, I will read my Bible, and I will determine to write out one life application statement. I'll think it through. Because faith is a constant exercise in thinking. Let me illustrate it like this. Just recently, my primary care physician retired. I didn't know he was retiring. Matter of fact, I had to go in for a, for a, a, a small surgery, nothing really big, but a small outpatient surgery. And, and I had called in September, or excuse me, the latter part of August, and he says, you're coming in in September, it's nothing to worry about, but we do need to take care of this before it becomes a problem. So I show up for my appointment, and um, they tell me he's retired. He sold his practice and retired, and I didn't know. So they just wanted to roll me over to a, a new PCP, and I said, no, I would prefer to find my own doctor. So right now, I'm talking to people why do you like your primary care physician? What's his specialty? What's his background, her background? Where do they go to school? I've already been talking to some of them. I'm thinking it through. I'm going to make a decision on a new primary care physician. Now, I already know the surgeon that's going to be used because I have relationship with the surgeon. But let's just suppose that after... I thought through and got my new primary care physician. Let's just suppose that I get to see the surgeon, and he tells me something a little different than what my PCP told me, and it's going to be a bigger surgery. Well, I know about his training. I know about his background. I know about his skill sets and everything. And so he tells me, and I go, you know, I trust you. His name's Daniel. I said, Daniel, I trust you. We're going to go ahead with this. But suppose I go home and then I begin to worry. This is a big surgery. This is a major surgery. This is a lot more than what my other doctor told me on the phone. And this is a lot more than what I told Becky. Nothing to worry about. It's a piece of cake in and out. Doom to doom. But now... I panic and I say, Daniel, I'm not having this surgery. You know what happened? I quit thinking. And when I quit thinking, I lose my faith. Because when I think, I know about his skill sets, I know about his education, I know a lot about him because of my experience with him. You see, if you're going to be a passionate follower of Christ and you want to live in that place where God uses you and you've got to have a miracle in order to be accomplished because if what you're trying to do, you can do on your own, your dream and your vision is not big enough. But if your vision says, God, only through you can we do this, you've really got to exercise your thinking and remind yourself why can I trust the Lord? God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above anything we could ever think or dream or ask or imagine. Can you say amen? amen? So that's what I'm trying to illustrate. 
is our thinking. Here's a wonderful verse that Jesus gave us that I think helps illustrate this. He says, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Now, he's saying, look at the birds, consider, think, reason, and ask yourself the question. Now, he goes on, he says, can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Everybody knows that. No. Matter of fact, worries will take away moments from your life, right? Not only moments that you could be living, but moments on the end of your life as well. So then he says, so why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God so cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, read it with me, he will certainly take care of you. Read that again. He will certainly take care of you. Now, underline that. He will certainly take care of you. And if, you, if you've got the, the little journal Bible, then just simply write Matthew 6, 26 through 30 in the, right there. Uh, kind of star that verse and write it over so you can come back and think about this. Then he asked this question. Why do you have so little faith? Look at your neighbor and say, he will certainly take care of you. Okay. Now, do you believe that tonight? So Jesus asked us each the question. He says, think about these things. Reason upon these things. Stretch your mind. Stretch your thinking. And then he asked you a really important question. Why is your faith so little? Our faith is little because we quit thinking. And good biblical reasoning thinking helps our faith to grow. Faith is much more than mystical. There is a mysticality to faith. I'll be the first to admit that. I'm not a very mystical person. I wish that I was. But faith is much more than mystical. But my understanding of faith from the Bible is this. That the more you think and reason biblically, the more you build a biblical worldview and you develop a biblical grid through which you evaluate everything, your faith grows, your faith increases, your faith progresses, your faith is strengthened because you're thinking. Worry is simply the absence of thinking. So when I want to highlight something negative sometime, I will draw a red line around it, and then I will draw over it with a gray highlighter or a gray-colored pencil. And if you looked at my Bible, you would see it looks just like the University of Ohio right here because I have circled it in red and I've highlighted it in gray. And that says, not good. Why is your faith Why is your faith so little? Why is it so small? It's because you're not thinking. In other words, Jesus says, prepare your mind for action. So get rid, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22. So get rid of your old self, which made you live as you used to, the old self that was being destroyed by its deceitful desires. Your hearts and minds must be made completely new, and you must put on the new self which is created in God's likeness and reveals itself in the true life that is upright and holy. In other words, this born-again life that we just read about, let me, you don't have to back up to it in the sound room, but let me read it to you again. You were cleansed when you obeyed. You have been born again, and your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living Word of God. What he's saying is, when you put off that old way of thinking, it's like putting off that old self. That's the reason literally old things have passed away. We take a new line of thinking and a new line of reasoning. And we put on, how do we, not just when we're born again, but each day I put on that new self by learning to think and build every single day of my life. Now here's the problem. Some people grow really well for a few years. And then pride comes in and they go, I got this. I know this. 
Friends, I'm going to tell you something. We don't know nothing yet. Pardon my crude way of saying that, but it has not entered into the heart nor the mind the things that God has prepared for us. If we would simply humbly and prayerfully apply ourselves to the Scriptures daily, we could confront the questions and the challenges of the world tonight with a power and authority because, again, the Bible is not like any other book. It is a living word from God and it's sharper than any two-edged sword dividing the... That word, dionia, dionia, that word literally is used there in order to challenge us, to challenge our thinking. So Jesus is, when he's saying this to us, and, and Peter, and in these verses we're reading tonight to supplement our understanding, Jesus is saying, I want all of you. I've got, I want all of you, not just part of you, I want your, your emotion, I want your volition, your will, I want your thinking, your, rational, your rationality. I want you body, soul, and spirit. Yet, yeah, I want the joy of the Lord. Don't get me wrong. I want the joy of the Lord. I want the healing that comes. I, I thank God every day for my healing. I, I want the strength of the Lord. But friends, more than that, I want the holiness of God. I want all that God has for me. But in order to have those, God has got to have complete authority over me intellectually. It's not that I don't have a choice whether to believe or not to believe, but every day as I'm growing, I have to choose to believe. I love studying the Bible with Christians from other cultures, which I've had the privilege of doing and teaching in many countries. Let me give you an example. My Korean friends, and I have some Korean friends locally who are spirit-filled Christians. When the Bible says, obey your parents, my understanding as a North American about obeying your parents, when I read that, that's really wimpy. A Korean, that, they, they have a whole different understanding about obeying your parents. Matter of fact, sometimes when I say to my children, you know, or when they were small and I'd say to them and they'd be struggling, I'd say, well, tell, tell Daddy how you feel. Tell me what's going on. And that's kind of a wimpy way of looking at things. That's not the way the Bible meant for children to obey their parents. Matter of fact, I see children sometimes hit their parents. And I've listened to moms and dads after a parent has been struck by one of their children. And I think, it's a huge mistake. I just talked to somebody about this the other day. Do not let your children hit you. The child says, well, do you feel better now? Did that help you when you hit mommy right now? When that kid becomes a teenager, you're going to be sorry about that. Don't act shocked. That's a common thing. But my Korean friends, if you challenge what they're thinking, off with your head. <laughs> to the gallows, to the dungeons. I mean, boom, off with your head. It's just, in my way as an American, I have been steeped in a culture of secular individualism. Each of us are individuals. But my Korean friends, their culture, they've been steeped in a in a, in a collectiveness, a collective society that comes from their understanding of, of Confucianism. But the Bible is neither Western nor is the Bible Oriental. The Bible is the Word of God. And so all of these, whatever culture we're in, the Bible will challenge us if we think through these things. And it takes a while, I've got to be honest with you. It really takes a while to fundamentally develop a grid for biblical thinking and to develop a biblical worldview. That's the reason these words are used, a renewed mind, a trained mind, an informed mind, an equipped mind. What is a renewed mind? When the Bible says to have a renewed mind, let the, let the Word of God dwell richly in you. When it says dwell richly, it's that digania, let it challenge you, let it, let it confront you. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. That doesn't mean that you're an encyclopedia of Bible knowledge, but you're, you're, you're letting the Word challenge your decision-making, your thinking, your worldview. It just simply means that somehow or another, as we daily apply ourselves to this, as we daily hide His Word in our hearts so that we might not sin against Him, 
We're developing a grid, to be mechanical about it, but we're developing a grid, we're developing a matrix, we're developing a way of thinking that we can immediately just begin to sift through the data as it comes our way, not based on our feelings and not based on our stubborn self-will, but based upon the revelation of who God is in Christ and what He has created us for, we're able to respond to the data biblically and powerfully. Isn't that something we all want? That's what I've wanted for my children all their lives. It's what I still pray over my adult children. I pray over you. I pray over my grandchildren. To show you something that I did, that to use the word in its secular use of holy, back in the 90s, I clipped an article, um, a mystery writer that I enjoy reading by, John Grisham, a mystery. Anybody here like to read John Grisham? Okay. John Grisham, had rec- he'd recommended a, a book, The Culture of Disbelief by Stephen Carter. Stephen Carter was a, a professor at Harvard University, and, and I really enjoyed, I expected a mystery, but it was really more about our culture. Well, let me just read you, and I'm sorry I didn't put this up on the screen, But Stephen wrote this in his book. He says, We err when we presume that religious motives are likely to be illiberal, and we compound the error when we insist that the devout should keep their religious ideas whether good or bad to themselves. He goes on in his book, and he says that, that, that the separation of church and state originated in an effort, listen, originated in an effort to protect religion from the state, not the state from religion. And he goes on to point out that how the good, and Stephen Carter, by the way, is is a black uh, university professor, Ivy League professor. He goes on to write about the good that Martin Luther King was able to accomplish. It came out of his faith in God. And he's addressing in this book why and, and this is back in the 90s, so there's a lot of water under the bridge since then, okay? This is back in the early 90s. But he's just saying that liberals should not reject the gospel or reject the church, but they should allow the gospel to inform their thinking. Now, remember, he's a strong Christian. Well, <clears throat> I've read the New York Times for years, and sometimes people go boo, but you need to read widely, and so... There was an article that Anna Quinlan wrote about his book, and I clipped the article and saved the article. Clipping that article and saving the article, I set it apart. It's therefore holy. That's just another little idea to illustrate that with. But Anna Quinlan goes on to say, and she writes in this article, maybe it is good for us to get more religious, not that it will change your mind on any of your positions. Don't think that just because you become a Christian, you won't be a liberal. Now, you might go, yay, but stop and think about what Ms. Quinlan wrote in the New York Times. Maybe it's good for us to get more religious, not that it will change your mind on any of your positions. Friends, that's wanting the emotion, the music, the architecture, and the beauty of faith without the Word of God that challenges and transforms the way we're thinking. Because if you're going to follow Christ, your mind is going to change on positions. Does that make sense? And I think that's what Peter is driving at because this is such a strong word. And he's given us these these, these commands about being holy as God is holy. Not that you're better than somebody else. Not that you become holy by keeping rules, but by you preparing your mind for what the Scripture says. Now, let me go back to my doctor's appointment. Some people want Jesus to be their Savior, but not their Lord. There's, I refer to it often. There was an old song that says, Jesus be the Lord of all, for if you're not Lord of everything, you're not Lord at all. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, he's talking about doctors. And he says, when he's invited into his doctor's office, 
the doctor says to him, Mr. Lewis, come on back. By saying Mr. Lewis, he doesn't mean Clive, stay out in the waiting room, and the Mr. Lewis part of you, come on back. He means for all of Mr. Clive Staples Lewis to come into his office. And when you invite Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you're inviting the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, fully God, fully man, crucified, resurrected for our sins. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto him. He is Lord of everything. That's what it means to let the Word begin to prepare you. Well, finally tonight, the Bible then encourages me to think and to reason. So, what do I mean to think and to reason? Aren't those identical? Well, reasoning comes as a result of thinking. You've informed yourself, and now you begin to reason. How are you going to do this? What are you going to do? In our world, and I'll, I'll be very simplistic, and you could go much deeper with this than what I have time or probably even you're interested in tonight. In our world, there's basically three bases of thoughts. Modernism and postmodernism both can be subsumed under the idea of scientific materialism. And scientific materialism tells us there's no God, there's no heaven, there's no hell, everything is an accident, everything has a natural cause. Even your thoughts are just the product of that chemical bag that Time Magazine says we are. And so if, therefore, therefore, if everything is relative, then there is no truth. And if there is no truth, there are no absolute moral values. And if there is no truth and no absolute moral values, there's no basis for reasoning. So therefore, when God gives an invitation to people created in His image, come, let us reason together. There is no God. There is no truth. Everything is an accident. There is no reason or basis for reasoning or morality. Therefore, the strong survive. The red fang of the jungle is the only law that really matters. It's survival of the fittest. It's everything's an accident. There's a second major stream of thought in our world today. And when I say our world, I'm not just talking about North America. I'm talking about the world, and that's Eastern religions. And basically, that everything is one. Everything is one. You're one with with God, you're one with the trees, you're one with the animals. Our problem is we think too much. Our problem is if we could quit thinking and just become aware. Imagine when you've heard somebody just wanting to tell you to meditate for a moment. Just become aware of your surroundings. Become aware of your breath. Don't think. Just become aware. Whereas the Bible says when we meditate, we're thinking, we're chewing, we're muttering, we're remembering the Word of God to ourselves. And the reason Eastern religions say that, and again, I'm not being critical, I'm just saying think. The reason Eastern religions say that because Eastern religions teach that when we die, we're all going to flow into that eternal stream of consciousness and there won't be any more individualism. Eastern religion's problems with scientific materialism and with Europe and North America is we're steeped in a culture of individualism. And so there's the conflict, not of civilizations, and Samuel Huntington wrote a really excellent book on the, on the conflict of civilizations, after reading his book and doing some thinking, it's really the conflict of thoughts. And then you have a third stream, and that's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel is what gave us science. 
It's the reason theology is still known as the mother of all sciences. And the fact that there were people in the church that tried to stop science doesn't mean it was the fault of the gospel. It just meant there were some foolish churchmen. Okay? So don't ever mistake the gospel for anything foolish that I might do. I certainly won't mistake the gospel and its power and influence for anything foolish you might do. Is that okay? Just stick with the word of the Lord. That's the reason that whenever there's been revival, people have heard the gospel, their minds have been enlightened. That's the words that Peter uses. That's the word that Paul uses. Their minds have been enlightened. And the Bible says, look at this in Mark 12, 37, the common people heard Jesus gladly. Modern translations use the word the large crowds. Well, the large crowds were the common people. The, the Greek word used there is, the, is about the common. Who were the common people? They were the slaves. They were the illiterates. They were the ones that were treated as nothing more than shadow or property or unimportant. Their minds were woke up. And suddenly, these slaves, listen to me, these slaves and these illiterate people who had believed a lie about themselves and a lie about eternity realized they were created in the image of God, they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and these slaves and illiterate people became some of the most brilliant minds in the known world at the time. It's what the gospel does. Deaniah, it challenges your thinking. It awakens your thinking. The word is alive and it's sharp. And so he says, if you're going to be a holy people, you're not just an emotional people that's acted upon. You're not just a people who are following rules mindlessly like robots. But the word of God is working in you. So daily set yourselves to reading the word. Let me read to you kind of a long quote from Elton Trueblood, and then we'll look at our growth work tonight. We have not advanced very far in our spiritual lives if we have not encountered the basic paradox of freedom to the effect that we are most free when we are bound. But not just in any way of being bound will suffice. What matters is the character of our binding. The one who would like to be an athlete but who is unwilling to discipline his body by regular exercise and by abstinence is not free to excel on the field or the tracks. His failure to train rigorously and to live abstemiously denies him the freedom to go over the bar at the desired height or to run with the desired speed and endurance. With one concerted voice... The giants of the devotional life apply the same principle for the whole of life with the dictum. Discipline is the price of freedom. What's he saying? Discipline yourself to daily prepare your mind for action. Study the Word. Apply the Word. Pray over the Word like we pray tonight. God, open my understanding. Open my eyes. Help me to see great and wonderful things from your word. Apply the word. How can you live out the promises? How can you obey the commands? How can you, what can you learn about the future from the prophecies? But carefully look at it. Hearing all of this, hearing it all laid out like that, they quieted down. And then as it sank in, they started praising God. It's really happened. God has broken through to the other nations and he has opened them up to life. Friends, there's nothing like when God breaks through the fog and the misunderstanding of our confused and darkened minds and wakens us to the eternal truths of the word of God. Amen? Amen. Would you grab your notes and your Bible and come join me here at the altar for just a moment or two before we go home this evening? Bring your notes with you, or you can, they'll be on the screen. While you're coming, I just want you to prepare your heart tonight for preparing your mind. Less TV, more of the Word. Less internet, more of the Word. Less Fox News, CNN News, more of the Word. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, just kind of look up at the screen for just a moment. But thank God. He has made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Now listen. Like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we're a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we're a life-giving perfume. And who is adequate for such a task? When our children were young, until just a few years ago, before Becky started having problems with asthma, I wore the same cologne every day of my life. Because years ago I had read that fragrance is one of the most intense memories that people have. And memories will always come back to them according to fragrance. I wrote that out of my Bible beside this passage of Scripture. And to this day, my children will talk about something smelling like dad. And I haven't been able to wear that cologne in quite a few years now because I don't want to cause Becky to have an asthma attack. Andrew brought that up the other day. He says, Dad, do you remember how when you would hug us, we would always, he says, all during the day, we would smell like you. He says, I liked that. We, we smelled like you. I want to give you a smell test for Christianity. If I read this correctly, he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. What's the test as you prepare your mind for action? It should be a Christ-like fragrance. You can underline that in your outlines later. That should be the test. Does it smell like Jesus? If you want to develop that, just five simple things I wrote down. Obey the Lord, study the Bible, and then practice smelling. Practice smelling. Can't you smell McDonald's french fries when you're driving down the street? I swear they must have big fans pumping that out in the air just to make you hungry. I never want their hamburgers, but I sure want their french fries. You can smell fresh baked bread. Practice learning what the fragrance of a Christ-like life smells like. It's the most intense of memories. You do that by becoming accountable to other mature believers. Sometimes I will say to Becky, what do you think about this? She goes, I think you need to go pray about that some more. <laughs> you know what she's saying? It doesn't pass the smell test. Or sometimes I will say to my prayer partners, some of whom pray with me today, and I'll ask them to pray with me about something. I'll say, you know, I need your honest feedback. I want to be accountable to that. It's how you grow. It's how we grow together. And then the most important thing is ask God for wisdom. Cry out for insight and ask for understanding. That word cry, it literally means cry. I pulled it away so I wouldn't scare you, but I want you to get that. It's intense. It's emotional. He's literally saying, it's like opening the window and looking up to heaven and saying, God, I want this. Prepare your minds for action. Let's pray. Lord, we come into your presence tonight. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And I thank you that nothing I can do, Lord, will ever save me. I'm not worried about being saved. Jesus has done that. But oh God, 
I want all of you. And I want to live a holy life. A strong life. A powerful life. A pure life. God, with the wholeness and the health that you bring body, soul, and spirit so that I might grow in favor with you and other people. And wherever we go, Lord, I want the fragrance of Christ for people to just lift up their heads and say, there goes a man of God. There goes a woman of God. There is a church you just can sense and smell the fragrance of Christ all about them. We want our children to be holy, Lord. So we cry out. Oh, God, we cry out for insight. And we ask you for understanding. Not that we'll be puffed up, but so that, Lord, we may be fit for your service in Jesus' holy name I pray. This last week I asked you to, this last Sunday morning, send a card, call the people on your impact list, pray for them. Sunday we're going to be talking about miracles. And if you have failed to do that, just simply just call them or send them an email and tell them you've been thinking about them. Inquire how life is going for them. Can I pray for you? See what they're passionate about or what they're interested in. And then if the conversation starts, listen. But when the Lord gives you a chance to encourage or to share what God has done in your life if it is relevant to what they're talking about. This is preparing our minds for action to be the body of Christ in our world today.